Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Wirth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. Um, If you guys haven't noticed, we're making some changes to the podcast. So we are expanding outside of the Southern residents and talking about species within their home range, as well as other endangered populations. So we're going to talk about another endangered population today. But this week, I have Naomi Matthews here with me. How's it going? It's going good. Thank you for asking. Thank you for having me as well. Of course. Thanks for being here. I'm excited to chat with you. Um, So Naomi has a platform called Whale Scientist with um, a friend of hers, and they share a lot of really interesting information about whales, but I will let you talk more about who you are and what you do. So can you tell us like, you know, what you're doing? I know you're working on your PhD. Where are you from? And how did you come to want to study cetaceans? Um, okay. Uh, really good questions. <laughs> I, um, I'm from Texas, Houston, Texas, to be exact. And I've always kind of had a love of marine biology, marine cetaceans. Um, and I guess it kind of attributes back to SeaWorld being three years old, getting to see them in person. was never fully satisfied with what I learned from SeaWorld. So I'd always go to the library with my grandma in San Antonio and just like devour the books I could. And then as I progressed, I tried to keep up with my knowledge through the interwebs and whatnot. And uh, I did my undergrad at Texas A&M Galveston in marine biology and then continued it um, in my master's at the University of Miami in Florida. And then, I'm sorry. Um, And then finally, I'm now doing my PhD here at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Um, It's in earth and energy sciences, so it's a little bit out of my depth of marine biology, but it's similar enough to where I get to kind of learn the the inner 
workings of how things are studied, how energy is produced and all this kind of stuff and how it, we want to try to make it more energy efficient. But my uh, research will be in the bioacoustics of marine mammals in the Gulf of Mexico, which kind of pointed me towards a little bit of um, kind of researching on my own, the Barrytera Bay dolphins that I'm sure we'll be discussing later on. Yes, definitely. Wow, that's really cool. You've moved around quite a bit. I also lived in Florida and Texas for a bit as well. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I went to high school in Austin and then I went to college in Florida. I went to Eckerd for my undergrad. Um, cool. So, yeah, no, I love Florida um, <laughs> and Texas. They're both great states. Um, okay. Very cool. Yeah. It's very common. I think that we see this theme of like people in a landlocked state having that connection through SeaWorld and then kind of expanding from there. Very cool. Um, so can you tell us about what is like whale scientists? What is this group that you've put together? Cause I see you guys putting out a lot of really awesome stuff and, you know, it's really great to see science being more accessible because I think that is like one of the biggest barriers between people and understanding what's going on. You put it perfectly. Um, it's making that bridge that being that barrier, or I guess, destroying that barrier for the public to be more involved and understand science in a different way a more palatable way. Um, and that's kind of how Anais and I started whale scientists. Actually, it was just a simple thought back in 2016. We were both undergrads. We were both doing uh, the same internship in Italy and we were living under the same roof and stuff like that. We had not known each other previous to this, but we like caught on like wildfire. We just, everything like just clicked in every aspect in our love for science and how we both kind of like helped each other pursue our own dreams and kind of like stimulated each other's interests and stuff like that. And one of them was in communication science and trying to be more helping scientists become more palatable to the public because it is one of the harder things as a scientist to do is to learn how to talk in the correct jargon essentially i mean you know you're always you're always taught to talk very scientifically write very scientifically very straight to the point and it's a little hard at times especially if you're not used to it if you're not always in that world uh, so we wanted it to be more accessible and kind of make it more easy for people to feel like they can be involved and, you know, can and int- contribute and help with conservation stuff in their own way through knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you're totally right. Like, you know, definitely being under that training, you're taught like here are the, the definitions that we use. And like, while all those things are very important in a scientific context, all of those details aren't necessarily important for the general public when they're just trying to connect. Exactly. Uh, it's hard for them to connect because we know the definitions to these words, but they might not. Yeah. So definitely take some training too. So it's like, yeah. it's not like something that people can pick up on overnight, but yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, and I definitely see, um, cause I work in whale watching right now. Um, and I definitely see that there are some people that are like scientifically trained and others that aren't, and that there's a lot of confusion, even with people in this field who don't understand certain studies and some that do. And like, yeah, it's definitely really important to get people connected to science. Yeah. So as that thought, we kind of like, like I said, it was 2016. So it wasn't until like 2020, essentially when the pandemic kind of started hmm. was, uh, when we finally, felt confident enough in ourselves, you know, that whole imposter syndrome where you're like, oh, maybe we're not good enough or we're not like, you know, but we finally like, we're like, you know what, let's go for it. Let's try. We want to do this. We're never going to do it unless we take this jump, take this leap. 
And in 2020, we started our own post. And like you kind of mentioned before, we are a platform where we like to produce scientific tidbits, fun facts, debunking things, um, and kind of give it to the public. We also want to be kind of like an advice corner too for young researchers, young scientists that kind of want to get into the world and don't really know how to. Um, because I know we both struggled and did a lot of Googling on our own to kind of figure it out our way, our paths. And we kind of also wanted to highlight some of those younger researchers, younger scientists, in order to have them have a little spotlight on them. Because I know we always hear about those, you know, bigger research names. And it's always, it's, they've done incredible work. And that's why a lot of us are still inspired today to continue yeah. doing what they're doing or, you know, elaborate upon. But we wanted to give them a chance, like younger scientists, young researchers, um, a chance to have that spotlight to kind of show people like, okay, it doesn't always, you. there is a stepping point for younger scientists to uh, join in and you can kind of see their stepping blocks, stepping stones into their, um, into their path and how they got here because everyone has a different avenue that they came through. Mm-hmm. We have some, uh, some scientists that had music backgrounds and decided that, you know what, this is not for me. Let me go uh, do some conservation work with the dolphins in Japan. And then they found their path through that. Or I know a girl that was a dancer beforehand and she was like, you know what? I can do dancing for only so long. This is what my true passion is. Let me go and do marine biology. And it just, yeah, it's been incredible to see some of these young researchers coming in and giving us their stories and sharing their stories. Cause some, some of them are a little bit more on the touching end where someone's brothers died and they didn't know what to do. They thought life is too short. Let me try to pursue as much as I can with what I have and stuff like that. And so it's very inspiring to be able to sit here and like read their stories and kind of interact with them as well. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that is so incredible. I remember when I was first getting into the field, like I I think a lot of people outside of it don't understand. And so they're quick to be like, oh, this is not a real career. You can't make it a real career. It's so competitive and it is so competitive, but um, I'm noticing a shift because I feel like when I was in college, I heard a lot of people still with the narrative of like, you can, they're quick to tell you that you can't like, and that I, I will have people that walk onto my boat. And if they're like young people, especially if they're women, because it's so hard to retain women in this field. Yes. I was like, listen, people are going to tell you that you can't, and that's just noise and just don't listen to it and just keep going because that's honestly the truth behind it. But no, I totally feel you on people. They come from different backgrounds. I like had the similar, like imposter syndrome was starting this podcast. And then I met Jordan Lerma, who's a scientist with Cascadia and yeah. he has a finance background. And he basically just like trained himself in drones and like trained himself in a lot of other things. And he's very encouraging of anybody else that wants to be in the field. And like, you know, he's very like true in his values. And I was like, you know what? He just like up and did it. Like I could just up and do it too. And that was kind of my like final straw of like, okay, this is like what we're going to do, but no, yeah. really cool. Because that's the thing is I think a lot of people think that it takes somebody special to be a marine scientist. And in a sense it does. It's like, you know, one of my professors in college would say like, you're unique, just like everybody else. Um, but like, it's really just hard work and passion. Like you're going to hit a lot of roadblocks, but I love to see that like people are breaking down those barriers and coming from like music or dancing or like some area where people would be like, Oh, like, you know, that's not super scientific. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I do agree with the fact that you're right. There is becoming the shift where, I mean, 
this community has always been super inclusive, but you're right. There's always that kind of like underlining fact. Oh, it's so competitive. Oh, I don't know if I'll be able to make it because of X, Y, Z. But in reality, like if you do reach out and you try your best and you take those risks, it's really just taking those risks that you can be able to achieve what you want. So. Absolutely. I think so. And it's definitely hard. And like, it's, unfortunately one of those fields where it's a lot of like unpaid internships and like, yes, you know, I do there's like, there are outlets that you can get into without having a degree, but I do feel like, you know, as scientific educators or researchers that degrees are necessary just because I've met a lot of people kind of that don't have that background or that training. And like, they just have a different understanding of science that maybe is not so accurate and like perpetuates that the world. And that's a little difficult, but yeah, it's so there's a lot of barriers, but I like, you know, I kind of agree with what you were saying about one of your other people that like life is too short and you just kind of have to do what it is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's amazing. So you guys share people's stories online. I see that you guys have like a TikTok, a website and Instagram. Um, yeah, a lot of that, um, which that's, that is so many things like, oh my God. I, <laughs> and I have an Instagram and I think I have a TikTok somewhere, but like, I haven't like that. I haven't posted it. Like, but yeah, anyways, that's a lot of things to be doing. That takes yeah. so much time. Yeah, we really tag team it as much as we can because Anis is also in her PhD program. She's actually her fourth year right now. So okay. it's getting to crunch time for her. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like, we just have this balance where like, if one week she needs my help, I'll try to step in as much as I can and vice versa. And we kind of have a system where a lot of our posts are related to each other. So it's kind of just building on each other. And TikTok is a whole new battlefield that we have just started. It's been like two weeks with this okay. and uh, learning. It's really cool. It's a really cool platform. I was one of those, you know, I guess I'm in like an older or on that cusp of being that Gen Z millennial era where like I try to, you know, push it away as much as I can, not try to touch TikTok unless I was like looking through Instagram and find a reel that has like TikTok based stuff. But for sure, I finally, once we bit the bullet and got and created this, uh, I started to realize how informative it can be, how easy that getting to the younger generation kind of having them have access to these like short little clips that kind of explain what we had posted instead of them reading the whole post. I mean, I love to write those posts, but it's needing to get people to be able to access them and want to access them is kind of, I guess, one of the major points. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, like with TikTok, it's kind of like, I mean, everybody's got a short attention span these days. So it's like, yeah, digestible. And like, I definitely have like, fallen down the TikTok trap I felt like like you did at first where I was like I don't uh, what is this like (laughs) it's definitely I feel like I spend a lot of time when I get on it which is not like super often but if I do it's like I'll be on it for an hour and I'll be like what did I just like (laughs) I just watched something in there that's like educational because there's so many like random things on there oh yeah for sure yeah it's a wide range for sure (laughs) wide range so Okay. Um, there's a lot of stuff on the internet, of course. So what kind of advice do you have for our listeners who are looking for quality information? Because I remember there was like this whole thing on TikTok and a bunch of like 
whale creator type people were upset with this girl because she was just like saying a bunch of false things about orcas that were just like not true how do you like recommend or what do you recommend for people to do to find accurate information rather than just like believing the first thing they see well so I mean there's the thing is like if there will be that one person that'll spew something incorrect meaning to or not yes um they kind of, I would say, just kind of double check your resources. Like, I'm sure if there's that one video, especially with orcas, there's yeah. that one video, I'm sure you can find 10 others that might like agree or disagree. And that's kind of where you start off, I would say. Um, sure. You can always, Google's always a good friend and it can essentially help you start off that kind of like, you know, simple search of like, is this true? And it kind of gives you, you know, a yeah. list of sources. And if you want to get even more in depth, Google Scholar is always a great thing too, yeah. where it can kind of give you more like an in-depth research. For sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just kind of knowing it's one thing with the internet too, is you can't always believe everything you read right off the bat. For sure. There's always, that's a good sense to have is to be a little cautious, a little, you know, curious about what you're reading, what you're doing, what you're Definitely. seeing um, and kind of just fact checking for the most part. But yeah, I mean, I would say make sure if you're going to share something, make sure you're sharing something that you can put your name with and for and would be willing to support because especially if you're in that scientific realm, you want to be able to do that because your reputation's on the line and stuff like that as well. And you don't want to, people make mistakes. I understand that. And that's okay. If you make a mistake, own up to it. For sure. That's all you can do. That's all you can do. People are humans. Like we can't expect it to be perfect. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think that's, that's pretty solid advice. Yeah. I think a lot of times like the internet can be like a, a harsh place to be. Sometimes people are like quick to jump down your throat if you're wrong. I mean, for the most part, just like do your best. And yeah, like I've definitely had to make like corrections on the podcast. Like you just type it in the episode notes. Like it just happens. Like sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. It's all good. Okay. So we've talked a bit about scientific communication, um, but we are here to learn about a species of bottles or a population not a species, yes. population <laughs> that is endangered. So can you give us a little bit of background about these bottlenose dolphins and what is going on? Right. Okay. So um, it is a mouthful when you read it out loud, but right. it's Barataria Bay uh, bottlenose dolphin population. Yes. They're found right along the coast of uh, central Louisiana. So kind of like almost straight shot down, sort of, if you want to just, you know, roughly at rough estimates from New Orleans, just south um, is like kind of close. It was where this Baratera Bay is. And it has always been a very um, culturally important area Mm. for Louisiana, for people specifically, because there's a whole community down there of people that have like had fathers and fathers' fathers lived there for centuries and um, not centuries, I guess, but like for several years. Yeah. For, for generations. Thank you. Better, better words <laughs> for generations. Um, and they have had this certain culture that they accumulated within these generations. And now this land is becoming eroded in the past um, several decades now from about 19, 19- 32 to about 2016, about 295,000 acres of land have eroded. Um, And this is due to the fact that um, the Mississippi River is a very vital streamline for, you know, pun intended, um, for uh, 
for Louisiana because this is where a lot of cargo ships go through, a lot of supply chains. It's a very, very important part, especially for a U.S. economy as well. Um, and the natural setting of this river is to divert and change, and that's how sediment and land in the south, in this coastal region, is able to stay afloat, stay readily there and stuff like that. Um, but for humans, we were like, no, we need this river to stay in the same direction, staying same way in order for us to better utilize it. For sure. And um, so we put up levees, we put a barrier so that the river could not move. And because of this fact, the sediment that was being distributed whenever this river would change or overflow and stuff like that um, just wasn't happening in those areas. Hence the heavy erosion, especially with sea level rise happening ever like very, very rapidly. Hmm. Um, so that's why we're seeing this big erosion and stuff like that. Um, and so now back to the dolphins, hmm. these dolphins have always been there for the most part, as long as scientists have seen them, eyewitnesses, what have you. Um, and they're pretty high in site fidelity for this area, um, which scientists have recently found out as well. Um, that being said, uh, as the, the land erodes, the dolphins get closer and closer inland, if you will, or what was inland, um, because they're trying to find their prey, their prey habitats, their, the juvenile uh, recruitment centers and stuff like that, because a lot of this land here is marshland, that's being eroded away too. So a lot of that land is being moved farther up. So is their prey recruitment areas, if they can find those safe recruitment areas. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, they're just kind of there. They're always kind of dealing with this freshwater inversion um, whenever they come closer to inland, because there's a lot of little streams and rivers still around, of course. For sure. Okay, so how many of these dolphins are in this population? Um, it's kind of a rough estimate because they do break off into little pods, but I think there's about 2,000 okay. within that area. Um give or take, they do kind of move out of yeah. the Barataria Bay. And they're considered endangered? Uh, essentially, uh, they're highly, I, I don't know if their status is endangered because it might be insufficient data. Sure. Um, I would have to double check on that for you if that's the case. But they are highly influenced by anthropogenic effects for because sure. of where they are. Okay. So what would happen if these dolphins are exposed to too much freshwater? So that's a great question. Um, freshwater is very, very bad for their external and internal um, systems. Externally, they will get a lot of lesions. The skin lesions will cause infections later on, which will then hinder their health even further. So it's secondary effects from the freshwater exposure. Sure. And then internally, their organ systems are meant to acquire some sort of saline solution going through them. Um, and they can cause different side effects as well. Um, especially, um, like sometimes there's respiratory effects and stuff like that as well. Uh, but that's also due to, um, prior incidences, uh, like the BP oil spill for them. So for them, it's very much one of those things that it's like a cascading effect because of where they're located. They get a lot of anthropogenic noise coming through. They get a lot of anthropogenic activity, that trash that might come through, the sewage drains. Um, for them, it was the BP oil spill that was one of the biggest hindrances to their population and why they're not really doing well 
even to this day. Um, that was back in 2010, August 20th, 2010 is when it first started. And then um, I would have to double check on the amount of oil that spilled. Uh, but I believe it was about um, 134 million gallons of oil spilled during the 87 days that they had this well uncapped. Yeah. Um, and it, that's a lot. That's the largest accidental spill for the U.S. Mm. Um, in history. The yeah. other one being from 1989, the Exxon Valdez oil spill, um, which was comparatively less. I think it was about like 11 million gallons yes. instead. <clears throat> but yeah, so I mean, they had direct exposure almost. Um, uh, not necessarily at the beginning um, did they have these effects, but as currents moved, the oil inland and um, that dispersant was spread on top, that oil would sink just below the surface. So it would look like to human eye that everything was good, everything was fine, but really that oil was just just below the surface to where we couldn't see it anymore. And it would just kind of like trickle through that water column. For sure. Um, their initial effects happened when that oil came closer to the coast. It destroyed everything. And I'm not meaning just for the dolphins, but yeah. The, the birds, the migratory birds that would come through that area, yeah, the local indigenous birds that would stay in that area, those marshlands, that grass, everything just destroyed because that oil just coated everything and it stayed there for a while too. Um, and for the dolphins, it was just in their, in their habitat and they're, like I said, very high in sight fidelity that they didn't necessarily think to move out of the way. Yeah. Um, so they had so many adverse effects that are still being seen now. Absolutely. So what can we do to help this population then? Um, and it also, I just think it's like interesting to see the parallel between them and the Southern residents of this is an issue of us doing things to rivers rather than just keeping rivers wild. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the issue, right? Uh, because there's the both good and bad of this um, Mississippi River Diversion Project, because on the good end, it will restore so many wetlands. It will restore so, so much land that's being already lost for sea level rise. Yes. It will save so many human, human needs too. Like a lot of that, like I said, cultural grounds are there for many generations of Louisianians and it'll save so much, but at the same time, at what cost? Right. Um, they, this project does, I've been reading up on it. Um, because it's been one thing that's really been interesting to me that I've learned throughout my classes here, um, that they are going to make it a, I forget exactly how they phrase it, but it's essentially supposed to be an adaptable, um, adaptable management process where they can change the incoming stream to the needs of the ecosystem. So if they think that too much fresh water is coming in, they can cut that's off that cool. pipeline. Yeah. yeah. Uh, cut, this is all in theory. I think it's it's in the works. So it's supposed to be yeah. like starting under construction, all that kind of stuff. I think it should be within like this year or in the coming years. Absolutely. So it's a pretty like right now project. Um, so I hope that's the case because then we can keep an eye on these dolphin populations and see how they're faring and stuff like that. But because they, it doesn't seem like they're going to want to move too much away. For sure. Yeah. 
No, that is, I mean, why would they? Like, this has been their home range for as long as we know, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, it's Just like the Southern residents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like the Southern residents. But, you know, it, I feel like it's like, it seems like animals leave whenever there's, it's like not enough food or if it's too noisy. And it seems like the Southern residents have been affected by both of those things. So they left. And then like, they saw that with the Northern residents as well. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I, I feel like they're probably not thinking about the fresh water and they probably have zero idea that that impacts them. Like how, would yeah, you, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, so that makes a lot of sense. I'm glad to see like that there are more policies going into place that are more conscious of the environment yeah. because uh, like, you know, that's one of the things I think that fascinates me the most about endangered populations is watching human behavior and human management around it and just overall attitudes. Um, and it's like, yeah. where does that come from? Um, so I'm glad to see that, especially in a place like Louisiana, that's, you know, Southern. So a little bit more, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, I was in, I was very surprised for, mm-hmm. I guess, a lack of a better word to see that they're thinking about making it adaptable because you're right. Like here, it's very much, um, I, I mean, I love the South, mm-hmm. but we do have our problems. Yes. And uh, sometimes it's sometimes we're very money driven. And I get it for a human existence. Sometimes that's what we need to think about. But we also have to be conscientious that we're not the only ones living in this area. We're not the only ones needing this area to survive. And I'm glad that they have taken that into consideration, too. And the fact that this is also not only just to save Louisiana's coastlines, but also to save this very precious marshland as well. Um, Because we need, we need marshes. They they are very vital to any coastal system. Yes. Um, At least here for this area. (laughs) No, absolutely. I mean, and I think, you know, having gone to school in Florida, like I learned a lot about like marshlands and like um, other ecosystems and estuaries and stuff down there. And like all of those ecosystems are fragile and important. And also like, you know, I grew up visiting Florida. It's not, Florida's not technically the South. Like it is geographically, but culturally it's. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it's Florida. (laughs) But like having lived in Texas and, you know, traveling in the South, I definitely understand those Southern values of like, Mm -hmm. and I definitely heard it from family members who are Southern where it's like money kind of trumps everything else. And I think it makes sense from a survival standpoint, but also from a survival standpoint, you need the planet. Like we need. Yeah, exactly. And I think people just don't, I think it's again, that lack of understanding. And then also, you know, ego, I think plays a lot into it as well. Yeah, it, it really does. And that's the thing, I think, because the fact that people are becoming more environmental, environmentally conscious that Mm -hmm. I think that's why they're making these rules or not rules, but adapting what they would do because of that, because there's been more of a public interest and outcry for these kind of things. Absolutely. And I think that's what the most important thing is, especially what like, kind of going back to what you think uh, when you asked me, what can people do is kind of keep up that, keep up with it. Make sure that just because this interests you for just a little bit of time, yes. that you don't forget about it. Cause that's when they can start being sneaky and doing and- things that are not so good. Absolutely. Yeah, no, definitely. And like, I think, yeah, that's an important thing too, is I think a lot of people sometimes, uh, uh, peaches, sorry, I don't know if you can hear her, but she's like, 
He's like, I don't know what it is. It's like, I can do a million other things in my room and then like in my apartment, I can be like cleaning or like watching the show or like talking like to a friend. But it's like when I am on a, like a, a Zoom call specifically, when I'm like trying to podcast or I'm like doing something where it's like, I don't need her to do it, like it's playtime. And like, she's like, you know, it's in the corner crying. And I'm like, can you stop? I definitely understand. I have a dog as well. And I'm so grateful right now that she's sleeping because normally it's the same thing where she just like whines or like something's wrong. Nothing's wrong, but something's wrong. Like, yeah, I'm like, can you, it's like, I can do a million other things and you'll be fine. <laughs> but it's like the minute that I get on a Zoom call that I'm like recording, she's like, it's time to like play, cry. And like, she's like, like she never digs in the outlets and she like I see she pulled out like, one of the plugs from the outlet I'm like what are you doing um so back to the podcast this is why yes. she has her own section on our website as our executive interpreter because of this <laughs> so, what were we just talking about I just yeah um uh, oh what people can do yeah. yeah so I think keeping the retention to like you know paying attention to what's going on and like I think a lot of times people will be like, cause I've talked to different people. They're like, marches don't work. This doesn't work. That doesn't work. Okay. Like typically like one March or like one letter or like whatever is not going to work, but like continued pressure applied over time, yeah. by a variety of people will work. And I've had some episodes where I've talked about like burnout in activism, because I think that's yeah. very commonly see. So I recommend that people go back and listen to that, but like staying aware of things and then doing what you can, I think is yeah. like reasonable. Cause I, I think a lot of, I've noticed a lot of people in this field, like myself included, definitely get overwhelmed. Like, I feel like I have like a mental breakdown about the planet, like every like four months. I'm like, Oh yeah. Shit. Oh yeah. You know? Um, and so I think it's easy to get overwhelmed and just remember like to do what you are capable of doing. And some days if you're just capable of like, you know, just maybe telling somebody else, Hey, this population's endangered and that's it. Or if you're not capable yeah. of that day, that's totally fine. And if other days you're capable of leading a march and writing, you know, yeah. letters, then do that. So it's, it's funny you say that. I mean, it's just a topic that we talk about too, in like one of our, um, our tips for just being like a person yourself, being an academic or just in your life on whale scientists, we do talk about burnout and we do talk about knowing your own timeline and knowing that you don't have to do everything right now that most things are a marathon. It's not a sprint. And yeah. in order to make that change, you have to know that some days, like you're right, some days you might not be able to do anything and you just have to kind of sit there and like, just take a breath for yourself, Absolutely. recollect your thoughts and then go forward. And then, yeah, it is definitely a thing. It's definitely uh, that burnout you were talking about for activism. It's yeah. definitely a thing. You see that for so many things where like, if you keep up with it, even a little bit, or get other people to help you keep up with it, it'll make the difference. It'll take time. It's There's only so much we can do in this moment in time, but over time. I think that's like a really important thing to bring up is that it's a, it's a, like a life work. It's like a, it's, yeah. it's not going to happen overnight. Cause I think we live in this very instantaneous culture where it's like yes. have things delivered to you in two days. Like that's so You're right have groceries brought to your door on the same day like you know we can we can get things fast we can get them right now and we're not used to waiting and I think also too like you know when we're looking at 
success stories, it seems like a lot of people just blow up overnight. Exactly. Yeah. Even that those stories are like newsworthy is because that's not common. Um, yeah. And no, but I totally agree with you. And I completely like, am guilty of that too, of being like, why isn't this like, Oh yeah, no, same. (laughs) I, I'm working on like a a bigger project right now that I can't really talk about on the podcast, but I was talking to one of my captains about it and he's like, you need to, you need to calm down. He's like, you have like, he's like, if this happens for you in the next five years, that's great. Like, he's like, yeah, because I'm like, I'm going to do this in like, in yeah, a like Erica, no. <laughs> like, um. <laughs> oh, trust me. It sounds very similar to like me talking to my advisor as well. Cause I want, like, I want to do a million and 10 things, 100%. but I know it was, especially for my like research. I, w- I would love to do this, that, and the other, and this, and then the other, but there's only so much time. There's only so much like resources. There's only one me. <laughs> like <laughs> one you. And I also think that like taking time, and this is a lesson that I was very stubborn to learn, but I'm finally now understanding is that like taking time to rest and like yes. to recover from the burnout is really important. Like the project that I've been working on, I just had to take like the last month off of that and just focus on getting back to basics of like making sure that peaches gets a walk every day and that I eat like three meals a day and that like, you know, I'm getting enough sleep of just like the very basic things because it's so easy to get. Like we live in a culture where we're applauded for constant hustling and like, yeah. And like, I think it's also hard as like, cause some people, they hustle because that they feel like they're not enough. They feel like they have to other people hustle. And I think it's people like us. I don't want to make assumptions, but it just seems the way of just like, you have so many interests and you're like, yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, yeah, it's easy. That, that I agree. No, I a hundred percent agree. And actually, I mean, not that I recommend going out and just getting a dog to like, make sure you're on a schedule, but it's helped me. Um, I love my dog. I got her, I think, after my first year of my PhD. So I'm in my second year. So yeah. Um, my first year, uh, during that summertime when I had a little bit of downtime where I could like, you know, take care of a dog. Like initially she was a little puppy. Yeah. I love her so much. Anyways, Aww. I digress. Um, but she's really helped me kind of give myself an automated schedule. Like she has to, like, I make sure she gets up at a certain time. We go for our walk. I feed her. Like she gets a certain amount of time outside of her little playpen. So it just like making sure that if I know if I'm taking care of her, that means I have to integrate myself into it too. Cause if I'm feeding her, I'm like, oh wait, I'm hungry too. Let me eat with her. Like (laughs) Exactly. No, I feel you. It's funny. Like, so I got peaches in college when I was like 19. Yeah. That was the semester that I had the highest GPA that I ever had because I was we cannot mess around yeah. a puppy too. And it's like, yeah. you know it they're puppies. They're like a little bit nuts. And so you gotta like, yes, so much. So <laughs> you have to be like on them. Um, but yeah, so no, I totally feel you. And I think also too, like, which having a dog, like not only puts you on a schedule, but like, it's a stress relief. I mean, yeah, she, she is, uh, she creates stress as well. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And in a different realm, that's like a different, like, <laughs> but yeah but I think for the most part like overall she's like staring yeah. at me right now the thing that she pulled out of the wall she's like over there messing with it and like she's being so manipulative right now because she's like just messing with things that she wouldn't normally and then looking at me, <laughs> what you gonna do about it 
Um, (laughs) No, I think having a dog, like, and I, I was recently just talking to uh, my friend Gloria and then also like Elena too. They're both from the co-extinction film, um, like having a schedule and like, you know, also like having like journaling, like being something that's oh, like, yeah. like, I definitely, I was talking to Gloria cause I, I need to get back into like a morning routine. Usually I'll just wake up immediately, check the emails, like, and just yeah. start and it's like, no, brush your teeth. Like, how? <laughs> yeah. like, like, don't just like get started with things. But yeah. like, I've definitely found that if I wake up, cause I'll think of all the things I have to do is like, all right, make a list. Like, yeah go from there but yeah no I think it's important to like have a schedule to take care of yourself like making sure that you like eat something healthy every day like yeah most part like the things that you eat are healthy like and having like a minimum of like 30 minutes of exercise and just basic sleep like these things take time but like it's so important and I don't think that we can function like I think a lot of times we forget that we're humans that just need to like like, I don't think that humans were meant to work like this, you know? Um, no, yeah, no. And I agree with that. But I agree. Yeah. Like it's, it's fulfilling to do the work, but it's like, also you got to take care of yourself at the same time. Yeah. Well, yeah. You can only do as much work as your body allows you to For and, sure. or mentally too. Like it's not just your body. It's mentally taking care of yourself as well. And you're right. I do think that we're not meant to work like as from the moment we wake up to the moment we close our eyes, we're not computers. Yes. There's a reason. There's a reason why our science and what we do can do is so great is because we're not just these automated robotic things. We need time for ourselves. We need time to make sure we take care of ourselves so we can do the things we love, the things we want to progress in. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is like definitely really important. Um, I feel like, yeah, it's, it's important. I feel like we've covered a lot. We've gone from a lot of things. I didn't expect to talk about this, but that's kind of what I like <laughs> well, about podcasts is we jump from like thing to thing. Cause it's all relevant and it's all like, yeah, it is. And that's kind of how whale scientist works too, because like one week we'll be talking about, I don't know, like, like the Barataria Bay dolphins. And the next week we'll be talking about imposter syndrome yes. or something like that. Because it, it's all interconnected. You're right. That's just, how humans are we kind of are a little bit everywhere but that's what makes us cool and what makes science so cool too because you can be a little bit of everywhere yeah so definitely yeah I think that you're totally right like I if people like their mentality on things like if you feel like you have imposter syndrome which I think um, a lot I think most people (laughs) struggle with that like so too (laughs) definitely gets in the way like I I definitely had imposter syndrome so badly like when I was in high school and like in the beginning of college and it took like building some confidence and like having different experiences to be like oh like I could do this you know yeah yeah I think it's important to like talk about because I think a lot of people I, I really love that our generation and like Gen Z and stuff like that mental health is like not like a it's not taboo to us. exactly like, yeah could be like oh like my therapist said this to you and like you wouldn't be like oh my god you crazy person like I feel like for them, yeah. <laughs> like that too you know um, yeah and it's like rather than it being like a red flag of like oh this person has problems it's like a green flag of like oh this person takes their mental health like, yeah seriously. exactly um, and I, yeah, I think it's so important because so many people struggle with it. And like, that's the thing that I think I've noticed the most is it's like, there have definitely been people that like I've admired or like looked up to. And then I see that they like struggle with this imposter syndrome or they don't mm-hmm. think it's good enough. And I'm like, 
what? Like you think yeah. that's crazy. And it's, I just think it's something as humans, we all do. And like, we all forget at the end of the day, like, actually I saw a TikTok yesterday is, is this funny. <laughs> this lady was like, yeah, like, you know, even if you put somebody on a pedestal, just remember they're a human that like farts in their bed. Like they're just <laughs> like, okay. Yes. Like this is, true. this is true. This is true. <laughs> like we're all just, like people at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, Awesome. So what can we look forward to like from whale scientists? Um, like, are you guys going to be talking about, like, are you going to be doing more TikToks? Have you guys thought about like a YouTube channel? Like what's, what are we looking forward to? It's really fun, funny that you would mention YouTube. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of in the works. Maybe we're just kind of like putting our feelers. Sure. We're still very much growing and I love the growth. We both do. We love the growth of like how much we've come from 2020 till now. It's been just an extravagant amount. Um, And I think what you can expect from us will be more infographics on Instagram and hopefully more relative TikToks as well. We might be trying to do like little shorts more so of like other things other than just our posts. So we can kind of like show you the inner workings of some of our research that we're doing or something like that. Or like, I don't know. Yeah. TikTok is a whole new platform that it just, we can, I definitely can see us expanding and growing from it. For sure. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, you're going to see a lot more posts, uh, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, TikToks and Instagram. Um, you'll see us on Twitter as well. We're there. Um, and it's actually kind of fun to see the different connections that we've made through Twitter. Cause I always thought Twitter was for old people. You know what I mean? Like okay. it's yeah. those like stigmas of the different uh, social medias, but it's really not. It's really a good science based science based platform. Words. That's word. <laughs> I don't have a Twitter. Like I actually I think I don't either. But like yeah. Uh, but I also I just thought that Twitter was kind of dead. Like I haven't heard anyone. Yeah. Talk about it. Well, that's the thing is uh, I thought it was dead too. I personally don't have a Twitter, but we do have a whale scientists Twitter. Nice. And that's where we get a lot of our uh, retweets of some of the articles that we posts and stuff like that from our website. Um, And it's really been cool to see how far it's reached. So like our post with the Irati dolphin, um, that's really actually been boosting up a lot too, because there's a lot of um, science going into a a lot of the toxicology of it now um, and showing it's actually quite polluted as well because of the just influx of human Mm -hmm. influence for it. So yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, you you will see a lot more posts and awesome. we're going to be growing. We're growing slowly but surely, but we're doing it. Yeah. And um, we're so excited that we can share it with people. Um, and if anyone's interested too in contributing in any way, um, wanting to write a post or something like that, we're always looking for contributors, collaborators as well, because we have quite a list of people um, that come and go when they choose to, when they want to write and stuff like that as for well. Sure. But it gives them the outlet that, and gives them the chance to write to like a public setting rather than just a scientific setting. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. I'll be sure to put the link to your website down there. Um, and then we'll tag you on our Instagram posts and everything. So people can easily yeah. find you. Perfect. Um, so <laughs> I obviously you've listened to the podcast. So, you know, I always ask, what can we learn from the Southern residents? What can we learn from the Barataria dolphins? Um, well, that's the thing is there's so much to still learn about them because they're not as well researched as say the Southern residents or even the population that's typically their control population. Okay. So essentially uh, what you can learn for them is that there's really not that much that we know too well about them. We are learning more and more as the years progress. 
um, it was kind of that BP oil spill that's kind of given us that push to yeah. this population. But their control population in Sarasota Bay, uh, they have a lot of information and we are learning a lot from them comparing like, because they're known as kind of their, their, their cleaner species because they don't have that much like human interaction, human inter- influence as yeah. these do. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see that dynamic, to see what is different, what is not. They're kind of, I mean, it's the same Gulf waters, the same Northern Gulf waters, essentially. Yeah. Um, apart from the fact that the Mississippi is really, really a big contributor to their environment For rather sure. than in Sarasota. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess to what you can learn from them is to keep an eye on local populations around you, make sure you're understanding if you are on the coast. Um, make sure you understand what's going into your waters too, because that's something that we don't really think about all the time as well is that some of those sewage systems do end up going down or even just rainfall, all that erosion, all that stuff that's that rainfall that goes into the, the ocean itself brings in all that debris, all that different nutrients and sedimentation and stuff like that as well. That's kind of going to mess up that coastal region too sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's really important to think about. And, you know, even if you're somebody that's in a landlocked state, you have some sort of body of water that's connected to something else. So it's all relevant. Um, well, yeah, the Mississippi river, that watershed is a good chunk of that central United States. So all that water that is being dispersed for that central United States will taper into the Mississippi river and all that goes out into the Gulf. For sure. Yeah. So it is something to think about. It is something to think about for sure. I think a lot. And again, I think people just don't know, like, and I learn things all the time and none of us know everything. We don't know everything. Yeah. Yeah. No way. Of course not. (laughs) Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to be sure to tag all of your like accounts and everything, um, in this episode description. Um, but I learned a lot. I didn't know anything about this population of dolphins. And also it's so cool that they're comparing it to the Sarasota dolphins because I like did an internship with Moat in Sarasota. Yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. So I'm like, Oh, look at those little guys. Like they're, they're helping with, you know, with other things. I think it's so cool to be able to like, look at different populations and like, yeah, think about how, like we, you know, once thought that all orcas are the same or all bottomless dolphins are the same. Yeah. it's cool that they're not. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thank you again so much for having me. And thank you for letting me talk about whale scientists as well. Yes, um, I really appreciate that. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Everybody go check that out for sure. All righty. Well, enjoy the rest of your week, guys, and stay tuned for next week's episode.